to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy podcast. Today I have with me Dr. Z. Nicolazzo. Dr. Nicolazzo is the Assistant Professor of Trans Studies of Education in the Center for the Study of Higher Education at the University of Arizona. Dr. Nicolazzo graduated with a PhD in Student Affairs in Higher Education and a graduate certificate in Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies from Miami University. Dr. Nicolazzo is the author of many really impressive uh, publications and syllabi, um, is an editor of a Routledge Press book entitled, What's Transgressive About Trans Studies in Education Now? And then Dr. Nicolazzo's main book um, with Stylus Press is entitled Trans in College, Transgender Students' Strategies for Navigating Campus Life and Institutional Politics of Inclusion. This book has some really important voices from students and lives out uh, Dr. Nicolazzo's uh, main tenet of uh, social justice and diversity trickling up from below, uh, from the voices of those um, who experience uh, trans oppression. Um, also, there is a special edition of uh, TSQ, Transgender Studies Quarterly, that Dr. Nicolazzo is a co-editor of, uh, on transformational pedagogies. Uh, so we'll be talking with Dr. Nicolazzo today um, about syllabi, teaching statements, theory, practice, the importance of being a self-reflective professor, and what institutions and other faculty and college and university staff need to do to be part of a truly inclusive environment. Uh, if I could get you to talk about self-reflexivity and um, control in the classroom. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, um, you know, effectively what I'm doing with my classes is that I'm trying to unseat this notion that I'm the sage on the stage um, and that all conversation needs to be directed to and through me as an instructor. Um, I'm really trying to rely not only on students prior knowledge that they're bringing into classes, but also thinking about how we co-construct knowledge together. Um, I did my doctoral work at Miami University and um, was fortunate enough to, to learn in the classroom with Marsha Baxter-Magolda, who um, talks a lot about learning partnership models um, in education um, and thinks about how effectively students and, and faculty members can learn alongside of each other, um, recognizing that we all have different prior knowledges, that we're all um, working together to co-construct um, the knowledge that we're creating through classes. And so what I've tried to do is recognize that I'm, I've been socialized for years to think about education in a certain way and to think about um, quote unquote experts in a certain way and to see faculty members as experts. Um, and so that socialization is still in me. And so I need to be really reflective and thinking about how I unseat and dismantle my own notions of my control now that I'm a faculty member. Um, and so whenever I feel like 
I need to be steering things or things aren't going ex is exactly as I might have planned. Um, I need to be reflective in that moment to really think about what's the purpose of our classroom space? What's the purpose of not just the content that we're trying to learn, but also the process through which we're trying to learn it? And how can I be good company with the students that I'm learning with um, and not kind of grab control and, and lead them in particular directions? Yeah. Well, do you get resistance to that since students are, are often socialized, as you said, to the sage on the stage and a banking yeah. model? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I got some resistance last week in class. Um, people were talking and even though we were sitting in a circle, everyone can see everyone, students were talking and looking directly at me. So they were talking directly to me and they were asking questions directly to me. Um, yeah. And so what I had to politely remind them is you should be talking with everyone. And that's a really great question. I wonder what your peers think about that, you know, and trying to redirect some of those things. Um, I also think, too, that there's a um, there's a false equivalency between being a collaborative pedagogue and taking this kind of anything goes approach in classrooms, right? Like just because we learn alongside our students doesn't mean that we won't pay attention to the readings or we'll just chit chat about all sorts of things. And so sometimes I think when my students hear me doing some redirecting or hear me asking questions like, that's a really interesting story, how does that relate to the readings? they might be a little caught off guard. Um, so there is some directing, um, but there's no kind of like, there's no gotcha moment. You know, I'm not trying to like catch students or, or anything like that, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, I, and um, Freire and, and Ira Shore would argue that what you do is more rigorous because um, it increases the um, re shared responsibility for the learning process in the classroom. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's you know, not uh, passive learning from the neck up, but you know have to yep. be fully present. Absolutely, and I'm sure that I'm sure that the students that I learn with would probably tell you that, and I, I tell them that as well. I say that I know that my courses are not easy courses, but I've created them in such a way because I know that they can meet those expectations. So. Yeah, yeah, and so you also say in your teaching statement. Um, something that that relates to this you say each time i teach a course i introduce our classroom as a community in which we uh, all students and myself both have responsibilities for our shared learning uh, and you have you provide opportunities for ongoing anonymous feedback um, mm -hmm. both the educational process and course content and then you say but i also connect with mentors as a way to debrief experiences i encounter in the classroom and gain critical feedback uh, on my ability to promote education as uh, the practice of freedom. So uh, I'd like you to talk more about um, how you how you introduce um, community into a classroom, how you engage students in uh, co-ownership of the process, and also how you've sought out mentors and um, you know, find ways not yeah. to be so isolated in these kinds of discussions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, in terms of creating community in the classroom, I think part of it has to do with um, setting the tone right away and talking about expectations for the classroom. Um, and when I talk about expectations on the first day of class, I actually, 
have awesome. students engage in three rounds of creating expectations. Um, mm -hmm. So the first is um, my expectations of them as students and as scholars. Um, then I ask for them to talk about expectations that they have of each other. Um, and really what I invite them to do is think about the best learning experience, the best educational experience that they've had. Um, and it doesn't have to be in the classroom, but then to think about what mm -hmm. they need from their peers to be able to replicate that best learning environment. Yeah. Um, and then I invite them to share expectations about me. And so right off the bat, we're recognizing that all of us play a part in making sure that this is a productive, engaging and rigorous classroom experience for our term. Um, and then, like I said, I do feedback looping throughout the course, um, throughout all of my courses. I've, I've kind of waffled back and forth about whether or not I should do anonymous feedback looping or not. Um, a number of colleagues and I have had some good conversations over the last couple of years about whether anonymous feedback looping is, um, whether we should be engaging in that because there's rarely mm -hmm. ever a chance where people give anonymous feedback and we should be able to engage in critical and constructive feedback. Um, yeah. And so, yeah. you know, especially in my field of higher education, which is an applied field, me and some other colleagues have kind of openly wondered, are we, are we missing out on a learning opportunity with students if we aren't engaging them in sharing feedback that isn't anonymous? Um, yeah. More transparency and accountability. Yeah. yeah, I mean that, and I also think that um, it's really easy for us to um, hide behind a veil of anonymity and kind of cast stones. Um, yeah. I think I think yeah. what's more difficult is sharing feedback and talking about it in a constructive manner. So. I might not like everything that's happening in this class, but if I provide feedback that isn't anonymous, I need to own my own shortcomings and how I need to be doing better. And also I need to be a part of the process of thinking, okay, so this isn't going well and here's how I can see some possible strategies playing out or here's what I need from you as a faculty member. Um, mm -hmm. So I think it's more consonant with what we expect in our field when people move on to be administrators in, at colleges and universities. Yeah, yeah. And your students, what uh, are they majoring in a higher ed student affairs fields or? Yeah, yeah. So most most of the students that I that I work alongside of are graduate students, so masters and doctoral level students. Um, I will likely start to teach some gender-based undergraduate classes, but that is probably going to be um, at least another year or two off. Um, but yeah, all, all the students that I work with are either um, full-time or part-time educational administrators in institutions of higher ed, or they are coming back to school full-time with the aspiration to be either an administrator or to become a faculty member if they're pursuing a PhD. Mm-hmm. And do you find, um, now that you're in Arizona and not Northern Illinois, do you see any difference in the, you know, the region, any regional difference or uh, in terms of the student body, um, in terms of more openness to inclusion and diversity issues? Um, you know, that's a really interesting question. I'm, I'm curious how that's going to unfold for me. Um, this is my 
first uh, semester. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's my first semester in Arizona. And so I think there are, you know, what, what I've learned with this class that I'm teaching, I'm teaching a gender and education course this semester. And what I've learned is that students are um, excited about the fact that this class exists. I've heard multiple times from multiple students and some of my colleagues that um, there has not been a course like this offered in the College of Education for quite some time, if possibly ever. And that is just a reminder to me that regardless of where you are in the country, that colleges of education continue to be pretty conservative places. Um, you know, I don't think we are adept at having conversations about things like gender and sexuality and race and how that plays into the educational process. Um, and so my hope is that those conversations will become more consistent, that we will be able to engage students across educational levels. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that I've picked up any regional differences as of yet. Yeah, I guess, um, you know, my location in the deep south, mm. uh, it may be a bit different. I don't know. Um, well, I want to talk about uh, more about syllabi because you have a a really interesting project, uh, Trans Studies in Higher Education Syllabus. Mm -hmm. And it looks like you're um, asking for contributions um, and also, you know, the origins. Um, and I think that my doing this podcast may, may be more than slightly guilty of this, <laughs> necessarily forging ahead though. Um, you, the syllabus origins, you say, lately I've become conscious of just how often I and other trans people are asked by cisgender people some iteration of the following question. How can I do better, learn more about trans issues in higher education? This question and the foundational assumptions uh, at its core bother me because, well, of course, you're doing unpaid labor and, you know, the cisgender folks like me aren't doing their homework and, um, um there's a lot of research out there that we need to, you know, get our uh, act together and find out about. Um, and so in gathering um, the syllabus, uh, it, it's really holding all of us in higher education accountable to um, being more inclusive in our syllabi, uh, in, our, in our curriculum offerings and in our individual syllabi. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I've, I've come to believe we have you know, I, I can't, I have no more, any excuses for not being more inclusive. Um, and um, it's easy to fall back into the old you know, uh, trans oppressive ways, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So uh, could, could you talk about the syllabus and what you're hoping for in this? Because I think this is going to be a really amazing resource. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, so, I think that there are some distinctions around asking trans people and trans scholars to share their work, I think, or, or to seek resources. I think that mm -hmm. the there are ways in which non-trans people show an ongoing investment in caring for and being with trans people, right? Similar to other people with dominant identities working alongside folks who are marginalized. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that I find to be 
entirely different, right? If I know that someone is invested in me in my community, I know that someone is engaged in doing liberation work, partially because they care about the liberation of trans communities, also because they recognize that our liberation is bound up together, then I'm mm -hmm. more than happy to share time, resources, talk through things, be on podcasts, right? This is one of the reasons actually why I'm on your podcast um, yeah. is because, you know, a, a trans colleague of mine said, oh no, Tina's great, you should talk with Tina, right? So um, so I think that that's one thing. I think the the frustrating thing for me is when people, use me and other trans people as um, dictionaries or as their Google um, and are negating the constant and consistent work that me and some of my peers and colleagues have, have been doing, gosh, for probably the past seven to eight years now uh, at this point, maybe even longer um, in higher ed. Um, and, and so that's why I made the syllabus, because I had the energy and the time to be able to focus on creating almost like a central hub of information that we could yeah. continue to add to, and then could be a resource that other folks, whether they're trans or not, could utilize to do their own learning. And so my hope was to kind of save labor and energy from trans people that maybe didn't have it or don't have it um yeah yeah, yeah. it's it's um you know there's several professional organizations that will have something like a syllabus project mm -hmm. right yeah. and um i know in my field of religion uh there's one that's extremely helpful when you go to develop a new course or, or rethink an old course mm -hmm. uh, so this is going to be really really valuable um, and I want to mention, and I'll have this also on the website, your Twitter handle at TransKillJoy. Mm -hmm. um, and did you take that from, you know, kind of a rift on Sarah Ahmed's? It is, uh, yes. Very benefit. much a rift on Sarah Ahmed's work, yeah. Uh, and I noticed you use her um, on being included in uh, your, well, you did it, Northern Illinois, mm -hmm. <laughs> your uh, critical and feminist pedagogies and your oh i have so much material here let me see um and your other syllabus uh, uh equity inclusion and social justice in higher education um uh, which uh, i wanted can i take that course um, yeah <laughs> i want to teach it again now that i've moved institutions so yeah yeah i'm a i'm a i'm a big fan of, of dr ahmed's work and um try to try to use her readings whenever i can um, i think that I think the On Being Included is really a must read for anyone that teaches or works in higher education. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I wanna talk about uh, resilience theory also mm -hmm. um, that you use in developing your uh, curriculum. Um, and the, the value of, uh, Oh, how do I put this? The and you talk about this in your book really well, um, and in the TSQ uh, Transgender Studies Quarterly about how how evolutionary you said it, you know trans pedagogies has been sort of uh, on the main screen about seven or eight years now, and it is an ever evolving f field mm -hmm. um, in terms of terminology and 
um, differences about should there be an asterisk after trans or not, mm -hmm. um, you know, which is just a minor thing compared to some of the other uh, discourses. So in terms of resilience theory, um, uh, getting you know, beyond some of the gender binary discourse and um, compulsory um, uh, non-trans and trans oppression uh, instead of genderism. And, mm -hmm. you know, the, it's the, uh, the keeping up in a field that is ever evolving, which I'm sure for you is, you know, I mean, this is your full-time job. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, um, I think the rest of us need to also step up to that because if we're in higher education, we need to know about this uh, and incorporate it into our classes um, if we're going to be inclusive. Mm -hmm. um, but um, uh, resilience theory, if you could do some more defining of that uh, for us um, in terms of, you know, the incorporation of uh, identities, uh, discourse, abilities, um, and how you navigate that when you are constructing a syllabus and, and a course. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so the way the way that I think about resilience is um, a little different than how it's been used in the past. Um, so the way that it's been understood, I think by and large through educational literature is um, it's an individualistic notion. Um, so it's really focused on the individual or one person and it's focused on like an ability that one either has or doesn't have to, to bounce back from hardships. Um, so it, it seems like a thing, right? That one either has or doesn't have. What I'm trying to do with resilience is think about resilience as a verb or as an ongoing action or a practice. Um, and that then places places responsibility where I think it really should be, which is on environments and institutions that may be problematic, right? So if someone isn't resilient, it's not because they're not good enough or they lack the ability to bounce back, which is yeah. what might be thought of, right? When we think about previous notions of resilience, but it's based on someone trying to practice a form of resilience that just isn't working because the environment they're in is right embedded with systems of privilege and oppression um, in particular for trans people trans oppression um, and so you know this this idea that resilience is a practice is something that we can try and try again um, means that sometimes there are ways that we practice resilience and it works and if that's the case, then we can take those ideas with us and try them again at different points in time and in different environments. And there are times where those particular practices of resilience don't work. Um, and so when we're in that situation and in that place again, we're gonna try something different next time. Um, mm -hmm. so, so yeah, I also think that it, um, it recognizes student agency in a way that older conceptions of resilience really don't. Um, so if one wasn't resilient enough, or if one wasn't quote unquote gritty, right? Or this notion of, of grit, I think, syncs up with older notions of resilience, um, then, well, there's nothing they could do because they're just not resilient enough or they're just not gritty enough. If 
if a student tries a practice of resilience now and it doesn't work, well, that student can just try something different next time, right? They have agency to, to try again. Um, and so that, that's what I'm seeing with, with trans students. And that's what we've been kind of thinking about as we've been doing this work together. And as I've continued to do research studies with trans students, I just bump into all sorts of different practices and styles that they're able to navigate these campuses, which we know are not nearly as inclusive or nearly as comfortable as they ought to be for trans students. Yeah, and um, it sounds like uh, there's the experience of, you know, institutions, the fallback position is, and, and this is not just institutions, but faculty also, is to blame the student. Mm -hmm. you know, well, mm -hmm. it's the student's fault. It's, it's not anything uh, systemic or institutional. Yeah. Well, there's a statement in the introduction that you co-wrote to the Transgender Studies Quarterly from 2015 uh, on transformational pedagogies. It says, um, how do educational institutions delimit and or proliferate possibilities uh, for the doing, thinking, and practicing of transgenders? Who is excluded from educational systems? Mm -hmm. um, and then you say, y'all say, uh, to this end, we have included several selections uh, in the uh, in this really uh, good collection um, that I found really useful. Um, so my question in all this is, uh, since I was in, I've been on the faculty here a long time, and over maybe 20 years ago, we had the first safe zone training, and we were mm -hmm. able to get someone from Emory University from there. Um, uh, Women and Gender Studies Center and LGBTQ Center to come over and do the training. Uh, the training still exists, um, and there is more now an emphasis on pronouns, mm -hmm. um, and all that is really good because when I first do, I started doing pronouns, uh, students thought I was, you know, completely, I completely lost my mind. Um, but I actually learned that at a Students Against Sweatshops workshop. Um, mm -hmm. a long time ago, maybe. Yeah, I don't know, 15 years ago, I guess. Um, so I want to talk, and I talked with TJ during about this too, about um, going beyond pronouns. I mean, pronouns, mm -hmm. of course, are important, but what is at stake in uh, this kind of training that I think lets liberal faculty like me off the hook? I mean, where mm -hmm. is the I mean, I can go to the training area, put the sticker on my door, um, but my classroom and my curriculum and in my department uh, and also in my individual classes could still be pretty standard fare. Mm -hmm. or, mm -hmm. or I could, I mean, I'm thinking of the list, I mean, there's just a laundry list of mistakes one can make, right? You tokenize, you uh, or voyeuristic, you, you know, just go down the list. Um, mm -hmm. So how do you get beyond window dressing? And so there's that piece of it, um, you know, where's the accountability? And then, um, but that's, you know, on um, the non-trans people to be accountable still. Mm -hmm. uh, these safe zone trainings that I've experienced um, get us off the hook. Um, and then what happens when trans studies becomes institutionalized? You know, mm -hmm. sort of, I think you talk about it or one of these, yeah, um, they do. The routinizing of trans studies. Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of two different things, but. Um, yeah, the, 
the programmatic interventions question is really, I think, an important one. Um, and one that, you know, a number of us, TJ, myself, um, Dr. Chase Catalano, who's at Western Illinois University, um, mm -hmm. Dr. Susan Marine at Merrimack, a number of us who kind of write together and think together have been talking about this particular question for a number of years. I think the, the really important thing you know, especially with pronouns, is to not decontextualize why this is particularly important, right? So uh -huh. it's become such a quote-unquote best practice to just say your oh. name and, and your pronouns in yeah. our field. Um, and I think what we lose when that happens is a sense of why we're doing that, um, mm. is a sense of, um, you know, why it's important to think about pronouns, what pronouns mean, and why sometimes the pronouns that we use might not actually tell us much about our our histories with gender, right? So um, for, um, and you know, Chase Catalano and I are doing some writing with um, Dr. Katie Jekyll, who I worked with at Northern Illinois about the question around pronouns specifically, and, and Chase talks a lot about his, um, his kind of experience as a trans man and he says you know when i share with people my pronouns that doesn't really tell people a whole lot about my previous experiences with trans oppression or with sexism because they read me as a non-trans guy um, mm. whereas when i share my pronouns um, then there is very much an understanding of what's happening because my gender doesn't adhere or stick to my body in the same way that Chase's does. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think we need to be really intentional and thoughtful about why we're doing certain things. We need to not just take things out of context and we need to, I think, create systems of accountability where we are always in process and always working with each other. I, I take really seriously the idea that social justice is both a process and a goal. And so if that's the case, then I need to surround myself with people who will consistently mm -hmm. hold me accountable to the process of social justice. Um, yeah. So for, you know, specifically for me as a white person, um, I need to surround myself with, with other peers, be they people of color and white people, um, to make sure that I'm consistently engaging with critical issues around race, that I'm not letting racist comments or ideologies slide either in my classroom or in my personal life. Um, yeah. and, and that's on me to kind of cultivate that um, network of accountability um, and to really make sure that I'm doing constant learning. So, so yeah, I can go to a, I can go to a two or three hour session and get that sticker and put it on my door. But what am I going to do to make sure that I'm continuing to educate myself, that I'm continuing to do the work? Um, and, and some folks that do these trainings are now trying to think about how can we move from um, a training model to a capacity building model where perhaps certain people might not need those trainings anymore because we're more focused on how do we build capacity for understanding an ongoing development rather than, well, let me just sit in the same training again next year that I did this year, right? Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I, and, and then the question about the field, you know, like uh, trans studies as a discipline is so new in many mm -hmm. senses. Um, and so I think we're very, I think we've learned and continue to learn from some of the critical feminist theory and, and scholarship that's been produced over the years. And so I continually go back to this piece that Wendy Brown wrote in 1997 um, called The Impossibility of Women's Studies. And mm -hmm. in that piece, she talks about what happens to women's studies when it becomes disciplined um, and, and what happens when we build canons, um, what, who, gets, who gets kind of pushed out and what knowledges get pushed aside. Um, and so I think that while we're moving forward in terms of creating a body of work around trans studies, we need to be really thoughtful around how trans isn't just an embodied reality but it's a way of doing research it's a way of thinking it's a way of coming to knowledge um and there are it's we should take it at its most capacious no matter how difficult or challenging that may be for us to hold open those possibilities